Hello, friends. This is the Neatarts Friends Church podcast. We are Jesus people, Kingdom of God people, welcoming, yearning, sharing. And we're glad you're connecting here with us. We'd love to connect in person as well. If you're inclined to support this podcast or for more information, just hop on over to neatartsfriends.org. That's neatartsfriends.org. Let's jump into today's sermon. Hello, friends. Today we're beginning a new sermon series through the book of Jonah. And it's a tough book to find in your Bible because it literally fits on two pages. So it's easy to miss. It's tucked in between Obadiah and Micah. And I know that if you're catching this on the podcast, then it's possible that you're driving or mowing the lawn or whatever. And so I get it if you can't open your Bible. But if you can, I'd encourage you to find Jonah. And no judgment. I'll give you a moment to go to your table of contents and find it. It's in the Old Testament. In my Bible, it shows up on page 866. But of course, it's probably on a different page in your Bible. While you are flipping pages, I like to always give credit where credit is due. There are many scholars and theologians whose work and research on Jonah has benefited the church. And so I think of them as the the choir singing in the background of this sermon series, or these are the the people whose shoulders we are standing on. Uh, Yes, you might be hearing my voice, but I'm bringing to you the scholarship and work of many others. Uh, so just to name them, Terence Fredham, Jacques Alol, John Goldengate, Pete Enns, Erica Brown, Uriel Simon, John Walton, Victor Matthews, Mark Chavalaz, Eugene Peterson, Dee Stewart, Phyllis Tribble, Irene Noel, Edward Davis, and James Lindbergh. And there will probably be some others as we go along. On the one hand, Jonah is such a short story that you can read it in literally three or four minutes. But on the other hand, once you grasp the message of Jonah, it runs so deep that you can meditate on this story for years and decades and still be impacted by it. Now, a friend of mine completely deconstructed their faith And I remember a conversation that I had with them where they told me, we were talking about Jonah, and they said, there's no way that a human could survive for three days and nights in the belly of a whale. It's just impossible, they said. You see, they'd found too many scientific articles, too many biologists online who refuted this possibility. Uh, They told me about whales' four stomachs filled with acid that would quickly reduce a person to bones. And besides that, the strength of a whale's stomach muscles 
would just crush the life out of a human. And so to my friend, if the story of Jonah wasn't scientifically plausible, then it couldn't be trusted and scripture couldn't be trusted and God couldn't be trusted. Now, on the other hand, I remember hearing numerous pastors over the years argue for the scientific plausibility of Jonah surviving for three days in the belly of a whale. And so they would bring up anecdotal arguments such as the anonymous article that appeared in newspapers in 1891 about a man named James Barley who was swallowed by a sperm whale and Several days later, it was reported that the crew was able to harpoon the whale and kill it and cut it open, and they found this man who had been lost overboard and the whale had uh, swallowed him. They found him inside this dead whale with bleach skin. The guy was unconscious, but reportedly still alive. And so this, this article... Uh, showed up in a number of newspapers in around 1891. And so the pastors would say things like, you know, if it happened to this guy, James Barley, then couldn't it happen to Jonah? Now, my deconstructing friend, of course, uh, he could argue that historians have pointed out many inconsistencies in the James Barley story. There are There are numerous things to be pointed out, but the primary problem is that the wife of the captain of that ship that reportedly lost James Barley at sea and then killed the whale and found him, that woman wrote a letter and said, "Um, we never had a man named James Barley on our crew. They were not a whaling vessel. Uh, She said, the entire story is made up. She said, I was on the boat the entire year that this event was supposed to have happened. It never happened. So both my deconstructing friend and the pastors that I mentioned, they were both asking the same question. And it's a question of historicity. They were asking, did this happen? Did the story of Jonah actually happen? And my guess is that you have asked similar questions. For some people, the story of Jonah is so outlandish that they roll their eyes and they kind of avoid it. It seems like a faraway fairy tale that got tucked into the Bible. It seems highly irrelevant and distant from their daily life, so they just stay away from it. For others, It presents a problem that can ultimately lead them to walk away from their faith. And you may know someone like this, or you may be someone like this. And for others, they search for ways to prop up the story and prove that it happened. And they do mental gymnastics trying to make the story fit with the science. The questions about living inside of a big fish are hardly the only questions. The entire book of Jonah feels larger than life. Everything in the book is called great. 
it has a great wind, a great fish, a great city. The word great shows up 14 times in the book. Jonah 3 verse 3 tells us, Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city. It was a three days walk, about 60 miles in circumference around the city. That's the way that they would describe the size of a city. Now, interestingly, archaeology shows that Nineveh was roughly 9.4 miles in circumference. So as you can see, the questions about living inside of a big fish, they are hardly the only questions. Jonah 4 verse 11 says, Nineveh, in which there are more than 120,000 people, who cannot tell their right hand from their left hand. Now, if if we're just going with what the book of Jonah says, and you put 120,000 people inside of a 60-mile circumference, and you say, how much living space does each person have? That means that <clears throat> each person, every person in Nineveh, according to the Bible, had 66,000 square feet of living space. Now, just to put that into perspective, my house is 1,600 square feet, and that has four people in it. So that means every single person had 41 times more living space than my house. 41 times more space. Uh to add to the layers of questions that we have about the book of Jonah, some interpreters look at that same verse and they say, uh, when it says Nineveh, there are more than 120,000 people who can't tell their right hand from their left, they say, well, that's referring to children. So if you have 120,000 children in Nineveh, then you have a population of a million. And that's problematic as well because historical records report a population of 200,000. So, uh, once again, more questions. Jonah 3, verse 5 through 7, describes every single person and animal in the city repenting and turning towards faith in Yahweh. It says the Ninevites believed God, and a fast was proclaimed, and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. And so there's this obvious question of whether or not, in the history of the world, an entire city of hundreds of thousands of people who all have free will, all converted at the same time, to a completely new religion, like in a day. That's that's kind of hard to fathom that so many people would make such a massive decision all at once. Nineveh was the capital city of Assyria, and we have the Assyrian archives from the time, and Terence Fredham notes they record solar eclipse, corruption, pestilence, a famine, a military disaster. And so we have to ask, 
why don't the records in record an entire capital city completely switching religions and changing their entire way of life? The Assyrian archives show that the goddess Ishtar was worshipped and that the city was violent up until the time it was conquered in 612 BC, which was presumably after Jonah's time. So, what does this mean about the conversion story that happens in the book of Jonah? If we're saying this story really happened, does it mean that this mass conversion that's recorded in the book of Jonah was kind of like a flash-in-the-pan conversion that didn't amount to anything? And, and what does that do to the impact of the book? And then you get into animals repenting and fasting and wearing sackcloth. It says, a fast was proclaimed, and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. And the king proclaimed, don't let people <coughs> or animals, herds, or flocks taste anything. Don't let them eat or drink, but let people and animals be covered with sackcloth. Now, I can understand the repentance of horses in that day. Horses were considered the war machines of the day, the, the army tanks, if you will. But what is a cow? What was a cow supposed to repent of? Like, I'm sorry for what I did to the barn floor the other day. I just couldn't help it. <laughs> or what was a chicken supposed to repent of? I'm sorry I woke you up too early this morning. There's this question also of a plant. The book of Jonah describes a plant that can grow large enough to provide someone shade. And it grows this it grows from nothing in a single day to large enough to provide shade. Is there such a plant that exists that grows fast enough to provide someone shade in a single day? And so we add all of this up, and you can see why people like my friend who deconstructed his faith, why people ask questions. They're like, huh, why don't the numbers match up? Why doesn't the archaeology and the history and the botany and the biology on the Jonah story match up? And you can see how other people feel the need to do mental gymnastics to make all of the pieces fit. And these can be very unsettling questions for people until we remember that God didn't only breathe historical archival documents. God breathed poetry and parables and satire. Jesus' favorite way of teaching was to tell stories that never happened. That's worth considering. His favorite way of teaching was telling stories that never happened, but they depicted something that happens all the time. We call them parables. And so parables are these valid, eye-opening depictions of the human experience and how God meets people. So stories like the prodigal son, and the Good Samaritan. And these stories are even satire, just like Jonah, I believe, is satire. So you say, well, what's, what's satire? Well, satire 
is when writers tell a story about someone or something that makes the main character look ridiculous. They're humorous. They're larger than life. They use irony to poke fun at powerful people or popular ideas to expose social problems. And they use an absurd storyline to help you recognize something that actually is absurd in real life. Writers use satire when the target of their story is more powerful than they are. So it wouldn't work for them to voice their complaints outright because they would be dismissed. And so instead, satire uses a ridiculous storyline to peel away this this shiny veneer and expose the true motives, expose what's actually happening. So they turn heroes into anti-heroes. They make people stop and think about what they're actually doing and what's really going on. They are stories that are meant to inspire change and social reform. And in order to understand the satire in Jonah, we kind of need a bit of the backstory. We need to set the scene. So God sent Jonah to Nineveh. And Nineveh was the military capital of the Assyrian Empire. So in in some ways it doesn't work to think Washington, D.C. because that's not the military capital. It would be more so like thinking God sent Jonah to the Pentagon. Um, the this the heart of a military capital. And in Nineveh's case, Assyria was the brutal oppressor of the day. And Nineveh was the ultimate symbol of violence. When Assyria invaded a land, they showed no mercy. They were some of the cruelest people in history. They impaled their victims on large pikes. As you can see in the The image, if you're looking at the the slides on our website, um, they flayed people open. They would throw children off of city walls, onto cliffs, onto the rocks below. They were experts in making their victims suffer. And those that were taken as captives to become slaves had metal hooks driven through their jaws They were connected to chains. They were drug away into captivity. So Assyria was Israel's nemesis. The northern kingdom of Israel was destroyed so completely in 721 BC that its tribes like disappeared from history. Second Kings 17. It's it's part of this exile story. There's there's actually numerous times in Kings, where it it describes the Assyrians dragging the people away into exile, away. And it even talks about um, hooks. There's a passage that talks about a hook being used. The southern kingdom of Judah was nearly consumed by Assyria as well. Barely survived 2 Kings 19. So the Jewish people couldn't wait for God to destroy their enemies. They were waiting for God to send an army to wipe Nineveh out, to destroy Assyria. So if you turn in your Bible from Jonah 
just like four pages to the book of Nahum. Nahum wrote a treatise against Nineveh. And basically, he basically says all Assyrians need to die. He calls Nineveh a city of blood and lies and plunder full of victims with piles of dead bodies. That's Nahum chapter 3. He says Nineveh is a harlot and she's seducing all the nations. And it's really interesting. There's like this light side and this dark side to the book of Nahum. Uh, On the one hand, Nahum says, The Lord is good, a refuge in times of trouble. He cares for those who trust in him. Sounds sounds really good. (laughs) The very next breath. But with an overwhelming flood, he will make an end of Nineveh. He will pursue his foes into the realm of darkness. The prophet Zephaniah called for God to destroy Nineveh as well. Uh, Prophet Zephaniah says, God will stretch out his hand against the north and destroy Assyria, leaving Nineveh utterly desolate and dry as the desert. That's Zephaniah 2.13. Haggai and Zechariah promised these pagan empires would be shattered. And so you you have this, this sense of the prophets are saying something bad about Assyria, about Nineveh. And then, in response... Along comes the book of Jonah, the the only book of prophecy to begin with the Hebrew word Hayah, which is, and it came to pass. Like, okay, here's another story. Irony of ironies, Jonah is depicted as a prophet as well, like Nahum. But here's the satire. Jonah is a prophet, like Nahum like Zephaniah, but he's a prophet who flees God's call and yet wants to confess God as Lord. He's afraid of success more than failure. He sleeps while heathens pray and pagans beg him to pray, but he doesn't. And then he he never tells God, I'm sorry. I messed up. He admits who causes the storm, but he doesn't say, I'm sorry. Meanwhile, the Ninevites all repent. Jonah is a prophet who becomes full of wrath at the same time that God turns away from wrath. Jonah is close-minded. He wants to restrict God. He wants to keep God from really being true to God's self. And Jonah ultimately wants God to smite the Ninevites and views God's saving work as evil. Jonah desires death for himself more than life for others. He's able to compose these beautiful prayers for his own deliverance, but he'd rather die than accept that well, maybe God cares about these Assyrians too. If you look at 2 Kings 14.25, like there's this historical figure that's used, Jonah son of Amittai, as, as this character in this story. 
to link him with someone that the character is a prophet who proclaimed the restoration of Israel's borders. However, in the book of Jonah, this character who used to be known as a symbol of protecting borders, in the book of Jonah, he's sent by God across the borders into the heart of the very worst nation to win them over, to extend God's love to them. Can you see the satire, the irony there? Can you begin to see how ridiculous Jonah appears as this symbol of border protection, but God is sending him to cross the borders? And can you see the contrast between these two biblical messages, the one being like Nahum and the other being Jonah? Like on the one hand, all Assyrians need to die and God's against all the Assyrians and is going to smite them. But then on the other hand, you have the book of Jonah that's saying, well, wait a minute, maybe God cares about these Assyrians as well. And Isaiah actually joins the book of Jonah. And Isaiah says, in that day, there will be a highway from Egypt to Assyria. The Assyrians will go to Egypt and the Egyptians will go to Assyria and the Egyptians and the Assyrians will worship together. In that day, Israel will be the third. Along with Egypt and Assyria, a blessing on the earth. The Lord Almighty will bless them, saying, Blessed be Egypt, my people, and Assyria, my handiwork, and Israel, my inheritance. Isaiah 19, 23-25 So, Nahum and Zechariah, Zephaniah, books like that, start to sound a little different when you read them alongside the book of Jonah. And so we have to remember that <clears throat> Scripture is a library of stories. These stories of God interacting with humans and humans interacting with God. And we get to ultimately see God as God truly is, the full and complete revelation of God in Jesus Christ. But we also see the many ways that humans distort God and how God continues to work with those people and how it's God breathing into messy, dirty, beautiful people. I, I think of the difference between moonlight and sunlight. Uh, moonlight does give us light from the sun, but there's also a dark side. Uh, it's, it's not giving us all of the light of the sun, but then once you have the whole light of the sun, that's everything is lit up. Everything is bright. So let me stop here. Let me say that if for your faith to fit together and to work, you need to be able to say that the story of Jonah actually happened, I want to be perfectly clear. I'm not on a mission to say this story didn't happen. That is not what I'm about. Because I don't have a need to unravel that for you. God is capable of anything, including keeping someone alive in a fish, including causing a plant to grow up overnight. So I don't need to say this didn't happen. But on the other hand, if this story has always created questions, 
and doubts and mental gymnastics for you, I believe this story holds just as much power, perhaps even more, if you view it as a parable, as satire, as a story with a point. And sadly, those who become focused on these questions of whether or not the story ever actually happened, whether they say, absolutely yes, it happened for sure, or whether they say, absolutely no, there's no way this happened. If that's their focus, asking, did it happen? They have both completely missed the message of the book of Jonah. So rather than asking, did this happen? I want to suggest a different approach to this book. And that is to recognize this story happens all the time. God help me see it. And once we start approaching this book like that, that's where our eyes begin to open. And that's where you can sit with this story that you can read in three or four minutes and you can meditate on it and chew on it for years and decades and still be impacted by it in your daily life. Because this isn't only a story about Jonah. This is a story about us. I am Jonah and you are Jonah and we are Jonah and the church is Jonah and the world is full of Jonah's. And these dynamics happen all over the place. Our world is full of Ninevehs. People run and flee from God's call. They are inconsistent. They want to be spiritual, but they don't want to open their hearts to others. They hide their true emotions in self-pity. And somewhere in the middle of it all, they find God working with them. God working with their reluctant heart. And so in the weeks to come, I want to ask you to do something. I want to invite you to start developing the skill of seeing this story happen all around you. And it starts with like reading this short story regularly, knowing this story. You have to be able to do that. But it doesn't end there. What if... What if you begin to notice people who are spending time in the belly of their whale and they're gaining a new understanding of their calling and their place and their purpose in the belly of the whale? And what if you ask the spirit to start showing you these dynamics in this story that are playing out all around you, like noticing pagan sailors, if you will, and how concerned for human life they are. And noticing how silly and two-faced big elaborate fancy prayers sound when they're prayed by people who don't love their enemies. They're Nineveh. And what if you begin to see the ways that God responds to the prayers of heathens just as much as the prayers of prophets? And what if you begin to notice the ways that God works with your own reluctance? What if the most important moments in this sermon series don't happen while you're listening to me? What if they are spirit-empowered realizations that you have while you're in conversations with your neighbor? An aha moment while you're in the grocery store or an insight while you're watching TV or a revelation as you engage with someone you'd rather avoid? 
What if this Jonah story comes to life for you and the Spirit uses this book to take you on a journey into your interior life, your experiences, the depths of your soul, to explore how you feel about God extending love to those you despise? And what if you experience God stretching you and expanding your heart? Love you, friends. Thank you for joining us for a Sunday sermon from Neatart's Friends Church. We hope you'll join us soon for one of our in-person worship gatherings. For more information, hop on over to neatartsfriends.org. God's peace be with you, friends.